Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8, we continue in our exposition of the Psalms. And while you're turning there, um, we have enjoyed the benefit of great artistry this morning, both those who wrote and composed music, those who put together short films to display God's power over sin, the people here playing their instruments, the people in the back making sure everything works right. We've, we've been able to enjoy great artistry. I want to encourage the other artists in this room, young and old. There's an entire songbook waiting for modern hymn writers to put tunes to them. They're called the Psalms. Please listen. Other music is good. I'm not against other music. But we need to rewrite music for our day for the Psalter. Because the church needs the Psalter. The church, and I hope through this time in Psalm, you'll see how much we need it. And so I'm looking at some who have that ability, and I'm saying to you guys, write music, not words. Not so much words, write music, compose it, so we can sing these great words to our Lord. Okay, that's a side note. Just on Easter morning, big crowd, lots of artists, just thought I would say that. Every person on the planet is in search of one thing. And that one thing is glory. Every man, every woman, every small child is in search of just one thing. Glory is the sum total of the worth of an individual or a being. That's how we might understand it. It's the imprint that's left by the weight of the individual on the life of those around him. In our day, it's more fitting to call glory by a different name. Like impact and legacy and influence and popularity and success. But all of those names just point back to one central pursuit for all of mankind, and that's glory. Mankind has been searching for glory from creation till today. And we must admit that for the most part, this journey has been painful and broken. Our world is filled with broken journeys of addiction, adultery, divorce, disease, bankruptcy, shattered reputations, insignificance, and abortion. Abortion physically and abortion mentally. Our world is filled with these journeys of brokenness. Our world is filled with hollow journeys of success that are defined by sex and vacations and houses and cars and boats and Fortune 500 businesses and presidencies and children and acclaim and adoration and achievement. Our world is filled with journeys that ultimately fail to bring lasting glory because no matter how tragic or how triumphant the journey, it ends with a tombstone. Death is the seemingly impenetrable wall that keeps man from glory. Death has the 
final word on man's attempt to achieve lasting glory. In our quest for immortality, we run headlong into this seemingly impenetrable wall that is not a respecter of any man. Bill Gates will lay his head down one day and die. The same as Carlton Weathers. The same as the poorest of the poor. Death is, has that final word on our attempt to reach our glory. Death is our greatest enemy. It's ultimate de- ultimately, death ends our pursuit of self-glorification. We are broken to our very core. So the question is screaming out then, how can we achieve our goal of glory? How can we get there? And I'm thankful. I'm thankful that so many of you came looking for that answer today. In a lot of shapes and forms and fashions. As I look at you, some of you came here saying, Dude, I didn't come looking for that answer. I just came because my mom said I needed to come. She put these frilly looking clothes on me. It's once a year we take a picture. We eat some good food. It's Easter. Some of you say, I gave up looking for that answer years ago. All I'm doing now is self-medicating. Just trying to make it another day. But I'm thankful today that there is one answer to that one pursuit. It's one. And that's what I want to show today from Psalm 8, that There is a solution to our broken condition and we can celebrate the joy of the journey to lasting glory. Psalm 8 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Now to be fair, I will say, because I didn't put it in the exposition, Our journey is for glory. But listen closely. God has one ultimate pursuit. Only one ultimate pursuit. And it's not for you to have a happy life. Or to be rich. His ultimate quest, God's, is His own glory. It has never changed. His one mission has been to gain for Himself the maximum glory now and in eternity. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have placed Your glory above the creation. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, You have established strength because of Your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. Last week we looked at that specifically in the triumphal entry. Jesus quoted that very passage as that strength which was established by the mouth of babies is the praise that was given to Him, that is given to Him from children. Running about the temple on the day of His entrance into Jerusalem, after being paraded in, He's healing and preaching and teaching and healing some more. And the babies are breaking away from their mother's breasts, seeing this, and running around the temple saying, 
Hosanna to the son of David. And Jesus said when told, stop them, shut their mouths. Jesus said, have you not read? Out of the mouth of babies, he has prepared praise from their lips. That's the strength that God established to glorify himself from mankind. Is the praise of his son from the simplest, the most meaningless of humans, babies. The most ignorant, the most foolish we might think, the most silly of all creatures. Not the wise, not the powerful, not the religious, but from babies. God says, I established my power to defeat my enemies because I have put praise in the mouth of three and four year olds to run around the temple and declare my son, the son of David, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. God displays himself this way. When I look, he says, at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? This morning we will hang out on the answer to that. Yet, this is the answer David has. Why are you thinking of man, God? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him, look at this, crowned him with glory and honor. God's ultimate quest is the magnifying of His name, the glory of His name above all things. And the way He's done that is created the world to display His glory. And He created man and crowned him with external glory. It wasn't His glory. It was God's glory. How do we know that? Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God says, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, And God made man in his image, in his likeness. He crowned him with glory. And he said, let man have dominion over all the fish of the sea, all the creatures of the air, all the creatures of the earth. Let him rule and reign over them. This is the crowning glory of mankind. He is created in the image of his God. God displays his glory through his creation, we said last week, and specifically through men. He's created us to declare his glory. Verse 6, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. So the point of Psalm 8 we said last week is verses 1 and 9, that God's majesty is declared throughout the whole earth. And the, the way he displays His majesty and His glory is in creation and man. That man and creation are not the central theme of this passage, this chapter for David. They are the byproducts of the central theme. Because God is so magnificent, because He is so glorious, He created the creation and then created man as the crowning jewel of that creation and crowned man with His glory, with God's glory. Okay? So first point, man was created by God to be the glorious co-regent of the universe with God to God's glory. Man was created by God to be the co-regent of the universe, the co-ruler, the co-king. With God's power for God's glory. That was what man was created to do. It says it in verse 5 and 6. He crowned him with glory in verse 6 and gave him rulership, dominion, Authority. How do we know he has authority? If we look 
at Genesis 2 where the creation of man is spelled out for us in very fine fashion, very plainly, man names all of the animals. In their world, and indeed in our world, naming something gives you rulership over it, authority over it. That's why you name your children. You have authority over them. God has entrusted them to you. You must name them. That's why we should call one another by our names. You can make up all the cute pet names you want to make up for one another, married couples. The sweetest thing you will ever do is look deeply into your beloved's eyes and call them by their name. Why? Because calling them by their name means something. It means you're connected to them. In a very intimate way. Adam was being connected to the creation in a very intimate way. He named each of the animals. But he didn't find in that creation anything that matched him. Adam wasn't in to animal life. He wasn't, he wasn't attracted to that. He wasn't excited by that. He named it. He has authority over it. But he wasn't like it. So God put him to sleep and made for him a helpmate from his side. That the two of them might image God beautifully to the all of the creation as they ruled over it. And get this, populated the world with little images of God. So that the glory of God and the hope of the psalmist might be fulfilled. That the shores of earth from shore to shore might be wrapped up in the glory of God, not man. And so... We see in this beginning that God created man to rule with him over creation by his power for his glory. That's what we see. Look what he rules over. Notice it. He has dominion over the works of God's hands. Earlier he said that the stars and the moon and the heavens are the works of God's hands. So man was to rule over all of that. Man was not simply to rule over the earth, but over all of creation. As I said last week, it doesn't bother me that my son believes that maybe his children or his children's children will live on Mars. That excites me. Because I think that was originally what we would do. We would just expand and expand and the whole universe would be filled with the glory of God as it is represented by the rulership of mankind. So whatever we can have dominion over, let's have it. For God's glory, not ours. So we see here that he was to rule over all of the creation. Not just all of the creation in general. Look what he said he has put under his feet. What? Sheep and oxen. Those are the domesticated bearers of burden. The bearers of woolen materials that clothed the people. Oxen were to bear burdens, were to plow fields, were to help in this endeavor. The beasts of the field, not just the domesticated animals and the farm animals, but even the lions and the tigers and the bears. Oh my. There's no oh my at the beginning. There's just lions and tigers and bears, and we were to rule over them. Kids, do not try to rule over them now. <laughs> Don't check out this point in the sermon and say, hey, I'm going in the mountains, I'm going to find a bear and rule over it. Tune into the rest of the sermon. Something bad's about to happen. Okay? And if you try to rule over the bear, it will have bad ways for you. But even the wild animals were submitted under the feet of man. They weren't wild. They were to be 
His subjects. Not just that, but the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. The birds of the heavens says, declare to us the unity and the, trans, the, the, the conformity of God's plan and His engineer-like mind. Birds that come and go. I was with Chuck and Kathy, and they have named, if you know them, you know this, they have named two geese that come to their house every year. Same two geese, and now they've had five sets of goslings, and three years ago they finally had a set that had some survivors, and now those come back every year into the same pond on Chuck's farm. And we were standing out there, and you could see their head sticking up, and, and Kathy calls it by name. You know, there it is. She's She's saying, they're, they're, there's, I forgot their names. Anyway, Fred and something, I think. Anyway, they, they, but they're, they're geese. You know, they come every year. And they wait on them. And, and, and that was to Stott. He was a bird watcher. He said, I don't get a lot out of birds, okay? I don't, I don't, that's not my thing. But he said, if you watch the flight patterns of birds, if you watch their intricate dealings with one another, the way they build nests, the way they hunt for food, the way they trust in the providence of God, they teach us that God built the world and he formed it beautifully to work in harmony with his will. So man is to rule over those birds. To have dominion over them. Originally when he was created, he had not only rulership over sheep and oxen and beasts of the field and birds of the heavens, but fish of the sea and whatever else passed along the paths of the seas. And you might say, what, why did he say that? Because there were, I believe, other things besides fish that lived in the sea in David's day. Big things, really big things that weren't fish. We have some of the remnants of them still living. Thank God the others are gone, we believe anyway, we hope. But we were even to rule over them. We were even to rule over them originally. This is how man was created. Man was crowned with the glory of God and was to rule over all of this. But secondly, man destroyed his position of glorious co-regents. By rebelling against God in the garden. Man was created with this glorious position, but he, he, he crushed it. He destroyed it by his choice to rebel. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that Satan indwelt a serpent, a large creature, and it came to him, and it was beautiful. And it spoke to, uh, to Eve first and said, Did God really say... That's where we know we're in trouble, right? When people begin to question the Word of God, if it's authoritative or not, or if it says what it's supposed to say, you, your antenna should come up and say, this is the lie of the serpent. This person's a false prophet. I'm out. Did God really say that if you ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that you would die? Did God really say that? Why, yes, He did. It should have been the answer. But that wasn't the answer. In her mind, she began to question the authority and the kingship of God. And then she acted on that question. She tested. No, God didn't mean that. What He meant was, let me interpret for you what He really meant. The secret meaning to what He told you. Eve, and what he told Adam, Eve, is that you would be like God. The deceptiveness of the rebellion of sin is that there is half truth in it. For in her sin, she did become like God in one way. That is, she knew 
the difference between good and evil. What he didn't tell her was she traded in the image of God's perfection and that co-rulership with God to have one aspect of the knowledge of good and evil. The one thing she didn't need that God had, Satan convinced her was worth having, and all of the other things that she had because she was a co-ruler with Adam over the whole creation, she traded that in. That's a pattern in the Bible. Think about Esau. He traded in his birthright for the blessing of that day. You have traded in the hope of eternity for the frivolous fun of today. You have. If you're outside of Christ, you're still trading it in. So, in Genesis 3, at the temptation of man, Adam stood by and let Eve partake in this fruit, and then she turned to him immediately and said, it's good, eat it. And he ate it. And in that moment, they died. The curse of the covenant fell on them. They lost their positions. How do we know that? Because the text says that they immediately were ashamed of their images. J.J. beautifully shared her testimony with you. It has been so wonderful to watch God deliver her from the bondage of image and body issues. And women, so many of you, and some men, but women, so many of you are still suffering under the curse that began to present itself in the garden when Eve said, He sees me, and I, I'm not all I should be. And Adam said likewise. How do we know? They went and put on clothes to hide. They lost their position. Now, in Adam's losing, we all lost. We all lost. The surest sign that your children have grown up into maturity is what? They put on clothes after they take a shower. Nobody teaches them that. 18 months old, two years old, they run around the house. They have no shame. They just run around the house. Some longer than that. If it goes too long, you need to see Rod. <laughs> but listen, the moment your child starts to mature in their knowledge of who they are, they realize I'm not all I should be. They know it immediately. And they begin to cover both with physical clothes and with cool attitudes and with concocted abilities that they don't really have. And they just try all these things to try to fit in the world. They're searching for glory that was lost when Adam and Eve sinned and they can't find it. You should pity. You should weep. You should pray. You should beg that God would save your children from this curse that we all live under. All of us. No, we're not where we should be. We should be ruling, but we're being ruled on by sin. We're slaves to it. We know we're guilty. No one has to tell us that. And so, after covering themselves, they heard God and they ran and hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? God didn't need that knowledge. He needed Adam to admit that knowledge. He needed Adam to say, I sinned. Adam didn't say that. 
He continued in his rebellion. He blamed the woman. And in that chapter, Genesis 3, verse 15, God revealed His eternal plan. Because you see, I said earlier, God is searching for His greatest glory. And He's doing that at all times. So the fall has to fit that plan. How is the question. If we lost Psalm 8, that seems to be glorious. If we lost that, there must be something greater than that. Right? I mean, at least we hope there is. And he revealed it to us in Genesis 3, verse 15. What did he say? You shall bear a son, and the serpent shall bruise his heel, but he, your offspring, shall crush the head of the serpent. The ultimate glory God would have was not in us staying in the position of co-regent and choosing wisely and ruling with Him forever, but rather that we fall and be reclaimed. Greater glory than creation is recreation. And so, the third thing is true. From this passage and from the Bible, we see that man is rescued from destruction through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This passage is quoted for us in the New Testament. Hold your place in Psalm 8 and go to Hebrews chapter 2. This passage is quoted at length in Hebrews chapter 2. And I just want to read it. This point is short, and we're going to get to point 4. So we've seen man was created in the image of God. He bore the crown of glory, which is the image of God. He was to rule over all the earth, all the creation, all the universe. But he fell in sin. He traded in in his rebellion all of that co-regency for the knowledge of sin. And that sin killed him. That's the penalty of death. It's, it, the penalty of sin is death. Okay? Hebrews chapter 2 says in verse 5, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. Psalm 8 verse 5 through 6. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Verse 4. Verse 5, you made, this in verse 7 in Hebrews, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Who is he talking about? I thought Psalm 8 was about David. I'm writing about Adam. It was. But it was prophetically about another Adam. A second Adam. Now in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to Him. We don't see it, but it is. But we see Him, we see Him, Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death For everyone. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. When Christ died, He tasted death for all of us. For it was fitting that He, 
for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. There it is. You're searching for glory. You're looking all around. You've tried work. You've tried sex. You've tried pornography. You've tried drunkenness. You've tried children. You've tried money. You've tried investments. You've tried friends. You've tried everything. Here it is. Your journey comes to an end and a new beginning. Look what it says. For it was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to what? Glory. Should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is, why, is, why he is not ashamed to call them what? Brothers and sisters saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Psalm 22, verse 22. And again, I will put my trust in him. We're not certain where that comes from. And again, behold, I and the children of God and the children that God has given me. Isaiah verse eight, chapter 8, verse 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subjected to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, not just Jews, but Gentiles who believe in the promise of the Messiah. Praise God, our children of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. He made satisfactory sanctification and justification for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The third point of this message is man is rescued from the destruction of death through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the point of Easter. We have no reason to celebrate unless that is true. And I believe it with all of my heart. You're here searching for glory. You think because you have attained some status in this world, you gain glory. Death will have its way with you. And when you lie on your deathbed... All of your business pursuits are vain because somebody else will spend your cash. Or the debt that you have amassed playing your game will come calling and your poor wife will see all of your cash sucked away into bankruptcy. And she'll live like a pauper until she dies. You have searched for glory in sex. Sex with your husband or wife, sex with your co-worker, sex with some teenager, sex on the internet, watching someone else, sex in some way. You've sold your soul to it. Let me tell you something. Not one dead person has sex. That tombstone will tell you how frivolous your pursuit is. Some of you are searching for glory right now. You're looking for it. You're hungry for it. And you said to yourself, self, if I get married and have a lot of children and I educate them at home and I do all the right things, people will know I existed. 
When you're dead and your children are dead and their children are dead, they won't remember you homeschooled your children. They won't even know it. You can build buildings. You can put up monuments. You can erect statues. You can do whatever you want. They will tarnish. They will fail. There's only one end that brings you glory. And His name is Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, He didn't stay in heaven and say, I want them to have glory back, Father. Could you just give them glory? No, He looked at His Father and said, My desire is that you're glorified in them and I will go and I will subject myself to the same suffering that they suffer, the same temptation that they suffer, the same cold, hungry, sick, weak, frail existence that they exist in. I will do it. Oh God, I step from the throne of glory and lay aside my mantle. The crown of glory that he had, he laid it aside. And he became a man. Even a servant. He said, I came to serve, not to be served. You've been pursuing glory in friends and fun and success. Let me tell you, there is only one who came from glory to give you glory. And he did it in the most obnoxious of ways. He put on flesh like you have. No one would dare postulate this as a solution. No one but God would come up with this. And he lived a perfect and sinless life. At every point of the law, he was blameless. And he stood on trial, condemned to die for you. Not for his sin, but because the wrath of the Father and the justice of God must be satisfied against those who would believe in him. So he took on our sin and he died on the cross. He hung, suspended between the glory of heaven and the fallenness of earth. And He assumed in His flesh your sin, your broken pursuit, your journey. He took it on Himself. And the whole time He was there, He thought of two things. The glory of the name of His Father and the salvation of His people. The whole time He hung there, I believe this. He went through the Psalter praying for us. While He died, your death, He prayed for you. Why do I think that? Because He quotes in order the Psalms. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 31. He quotes them in order because He's praying on the cross for us, for those around the cross, for His Father. He's praying as a high priest, offering a high priest's sacrifice, not a lamb, but His own flesh. And He was buried, laid dead in a grave for three days. But, on the resurrection morning, God approved of him in the most magnificent way. He raised him from the dead. And he trampled death by death. He came awake. He woke up from death's slumber and he walked out of a tomb. You can pursue glory all you want. Your tomb will have the last word unless his tomb has the last word.
what will it be? Well, look, you can play Easter all you want. You can go home and barbecue and have a good time and be an American and cultural Christian, or you can be born again today. I'm praying the latter. Be born again. Believe! For, for the name of God, believe! For your own pursuit, believe! And forget yourself and die to yourself and cling to Him in simple and humble faith. And the object of your faith, Christ, will save you. He will carry you from death to life that quick. And then you can celebrate Easter. Then you can celebrate the resurrection. Then you can have a party. Then heaven will have a party. God will have a party. Until then, you're just eating barbecue. While you fast become the skewer of sin makes you the barbecue of hell. Listen, come now. You've lost it all. He gained it all. And He's going to give it all. Point four is man is returned to glory through his union with Jesus Christ's death and resurrection by faith alone in Christ alone. As we close, in the interpretation of Psalm 8, we look at 1 Corinthians. Paul also quotes our text 1 Corinthians 15, the longest chapter in the Bible about the resurrection. And I just want to run through it as we close. I want to run through it. I want to make some points. And I want to exclaim the glory of this resurrection and this life in union with Him. Man is returned to glory through his union with Jesus Christ's death and resurrection by faith alone in Christ alone. Faith alone only saves because of Christ alone. 1 Corinthians 15 says in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This is the gospel, that Christ died for our sin in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other. Anyone who preaches another gospel to you is a liar from hell. This is it. So your searching for glory should end today and you should be buried with Him in death and raised to new life and you will have glory, His glory, forever. And then the tomb won't have its final say on you. His tomb will have the final say and you will live forever. Skip down to verse 17 and 19. In the same chapter, Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people must be, most should be pitied. The resurrection matters because without it our faith is futile. If all we have is a set of rules to live a good life by, it's bogus. We should say live and let live, carpe diem, and live it to the fullest because it's all we got. There's no other solution, no other sanctification, no other hope. Jesus is it. And if He's raised, if He's not raised, we have no hope. Verse 21 through 28. This is where it gets really good. In the law, oh excuse me, verse 21. For as by a man came death, we've already talked about it, Adam. By Adam 
came death. By man has come to also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, don't get confused here. Who is being made alive? Well, the people who are in Christ. Adam represented all of humanity. Christ represents all who believe in Him. Adam's representation brought death and sin and destruction. Christ's representation brings life and goodness and gifts and Him, God, unification with God. So all who are in Christ are made alive, but each in his own order. Look at the order. Christ, the firstfruits. Christ's resurrection is the proof that he brings resurrection life. Christ, the firstfruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. So we're told right here, pausing for a moment before we finish, we're told right here that there's something that's going to happen. It's still to come. It's in the future. In some ways, Psalm 8 is still being fulfilled. At his death, Christ was seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is ruling and reigning. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God has highly exalted him. He has now put back on that mantle of glory that he set aside for a moment and came to the earth. He's put it back on. He's in the Holy of Holies of heaven. That's where he is right now, seated at the right hand of his Father. But he's coming. His resurrection is the first fruits, and at his coming, something's going to happen. A resurrection. A resurrection of who? Of the living and the dead. Those who lived, John 5 tells us, those who lived according to their deeds, the evil deeds, they will be raised up and damned to hell. And those who lived according to Christ and in Christ will be raised imperishable, raised to glory. There's a resurrection coming. We've seen the mini-drama in Christ. And now the whole will be resurrected. In verse 23. And it happens at one time, in one place. When? When he comes again. When he comes again. That's the clearest way to understand the text. If therefore, excuse me, I keep wanting to read 14. <laughs> 23. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, after the judgment is the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God. Not it begins. But he delivers it. The kingdom of God began clearly when Christ came to do ministry on the earth. He was seated at the throne when he died and was resurrected and ascended back to the Father. And it will be made abundantly clear and consummated at his second coming. There's not a kingdom beginning then. It's a kingdom being delivered over. Right there. Why is it already being only delivered at this point. Why? Because God the Father, after destroying the rule, every rule and every authority and power, when did He do that? In the death of Christ He did it. and the resurrection of Christ He did it. He destroyed evil. He destroyed Satan. He destroyed the rule and power of those things. Satan is a dead man walking. For he must reign. He must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. When does that happen? When he comes again, the last enemy to be destroyed is death at the resurrection. For God has put all things in subjection under his, under his feet. Rome, uh, Romans, I mean, Psalm 8, verse 6. God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That's the fulfillment. The fullest fulfillment of Psalm 8 will happen at his second coming. But when it says all things are to be subject, it is plain that one thing is accepted, and that is 
Him who subjected all things. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to God the Father, who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. So we bring the sermon to a crescendo by saying, God's ultimate aim is to have His own glory. And He will have it. And He is having it through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the salvation of Christ's brothers and sisters, and when God is given back the kingdom at His second coming, Christ's second coming, He delivers that kingdom, God will be all in all. And we will live with Him in the new heavens and the new earth forever. And the lion will lay down with the lamb. And the children will play over the adder's den with no fear. Because sin will be gone and death will be gone. How do we know? How can we be certain? Verses 50 through 57. This will be our close. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. When Christ comes with that last trumpet, we will be changed. Through the resurrection, we will be changed. For his, this imperishable body must put on imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? Isaiah 25, verse 8. O death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What you need now, more than anything, man, woman, child gathered here today, is to know Christ. Because He has swallowed the sting of death, which is sin, for you. And if you're in Him, you will never die again. You will never die. Your body, your mortal flesh, if He waits in His coming... Your mortal flesh will drop to the earth. And in that moment, your spirit will be free from this mortal flesh and will put on immortality at His second coming. You will live with Him forever. There's no fountain of youth. There is a fountain of life. Men have been looking for the fountain of youth since who knows when. Ancient days. And they've never found it because there's not one. It's not in Florida. The Spaniards thought so. Everybody in Florida dies too. More so now because old people from up north are moving down south. It's just a reality. I'm trying to be crass. It's true. Everybody's dying in Florida. There's no fountain of youth down there. Right? But there is a fountain of life, which I proclaim to you today, which these songs have proclaimed to you today. There's a fountain of life. His name is Jesus. The one who drinks this water will never thirst again. Stop looking for your own glory and wrap yourself in the glory of the Son by faith in Him alone.